Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. First Nephi chapter 15 is Nephi's return from his visit to the visionary realm. It is the final chapter that will address and expand upon Lehi's vision, which is recorded in chapter 8, and also Lehi's prophecies, which are recorded in chapter 10. Following this chapter, then, we will return to the storytelling narrative in 1 Nephi chapter 16. Lehi and his family will resume their journey into the wilderness and on to the promised land. As we remember everything that Nephi has taken in over the previous four chapters, in chapters 11 through 14, we might imagine his anticipation as he returns to his father's tent. As we read in verse 1, we can imagine his desire to share his joy with his father, uh, as well as his heavy burden. But instead, in Nephi's exhausted state, he discovers his brethren, as we read in verse 2, and they too are coming to terms with the contents of Lehi's vision and his prophecy in chapter 10. However, unlike Nephi, they're doing this in all the wrong ways. They are appealing to human intellect, and they are disputing one with another, as it says in verse 2, or we might interpret that as contending one with another as to the truth of Lehi's words and the meaning of his vision and prophecy. This, as the Lord will tell us directly in 3 Nephi chapter 11, is exactly the wrong way to establish his doctrine. The correct way to establish doctrine and to understand the things of God, as Nephi will teach us in this chapter, is through a direct appeal to God, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Nephi has an interaction with his brothers then in verses 2 through 6 that discuss this concept. He then teaches them and us in verses 7 through 11 about how it is that we should inquire of the Lord, the phrase that Nephi uses in verse 8. At this point in the chapter, Nephi begins to expand upon the particulars of Lehi's vision and of his prophecy no doubt clarifying the particular subjects that his brothers were discussing and were disputing about uh, when he came upon them as he approached his father's tent. The first of those subjects is addressed in verses 12 through 13, which discusses the restoration of the Gentiles. Verses 14 through 18 then discusses the restoration of their own seed, or we might say Lehi's seed, And then verses 19 and 20 
discuss the restoration of the Jews specifically. This will give us, as we move through the chapter, an opportunity to pause and talk a little bit about the gathering of Israel, which we will do. Then in verses 21 through 28, Nephi offers three key interpretations from Lehi's vision. In verse 21, he tells us the meaning of the tree, tells his brothers the meaning of the tree. In verse 23, he tells them the meaning of the rod. And in verse 26, he discusses the river. He keys in on the image of the river and discusses the state of separation that those who are captive to its depths will experience. And that is the state of separation from God and from the tree of life, or in other words, hell. Nephi discusses this from verses 29 to the end, where in verse 36, he will emphasize that when in this hell, the wicked are rejected from the righteous, as it says, and also from the tree of life, whose fruit is most precious and most desirable above all other fruits. We'll return now to the beginning of the chapter, where in verse 1, we read, And it came to pass that after I, Nephi, had been carried away in the Spirit, and seen all these things, I returned to the tent of my father. This, of course, provides continuity for us, where in the previous chapter, at the very end, Nephi used the same phrase, saying at the end of his great vision that he was carried away in the Spirit. So he's referencing that here, and then reorienting us, as he's done so many times previously, to the tent of his father. As I mentioned earlier, uh, I think we can only imagine the anticipation that Nephi would have felt in the prospect of confiding with his father and commiserating with him in Hawaii, because both now have experienced the blessing and the burden of seeing this great vision. There would have been a spirit of uh, rejoicing between Lehi and Nephi, and there undoubtedly was, but it is interrupted by this episode that now takes place in the remainder of the chapter. Having our rejoicings interrupted in this way is incident to mortality. In our spiritual journey, as we constantly seek out the sublime, we still find ourselves having to deal with the mundane requirements of day-to-day life. And even worse, there are forces at play inspired by the adversary that want to block us from experiencing such rejoicing. And that's kind of what we're seeing here as this chapter goes on. It's reminiscent of something that Alma said to Korahor. In Alma chapter 30, verse 22, Why do ye go about perverting the ways of the Lord? Why do ye teach this people that there shall be no Christ to interrupt their rejoicings? Well, Nephi's rejoicing is certainly going to be interrupted here as he encounters his brethren, as it says in verse 2, disputing one with another. This might remind us of Elder Holland's recent conference talk in April 2016, where he discussed a phenomenon that he coined post-illumination affliction. He says this, It is inevitable that after heavenly moments in our lives, we of necessity return to earth, so to speak, where sometimes less-than-ideal circumstances again face us. The author of Hebrews warned us of this when he wrote, Call to remembrance the former days, in which after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions. That post-illumination affliction can come in many ways, and it can come to all of us. 
Surely every missionary who has ever served soon realized that life in the field wasn't going to be quite like the rarefied atmosphere of the missionary training center. So too for all of us, leaving upon a sweet session in the temple or concluding a particularly spiritual sacrament meeting. Remember that when Moses came down from his singular experience on Mount Sinai, he found that his people had corrupted themselves and had turned aside quickly. There they were at the foot of the mountain, busily fashioning a golden calf to worship in the very hour that Jehovah, at the summit of the mountain, had been telling Moses, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, and thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Moses was not happy with his flock of wandering Israelites that day. During his earthly ministry, Jesus took Peter, James, and John to the Mount of Transfiguration, where the scriptures say, His face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. The heavens opened, ancient prophets came, and God the Father spoke. After such a celestial experience, what does Jesus come down the mountain to find? Well, first he found an argument between his disciples and their antagonists over a failed blessing administered to a young boy. Then he tried to convince the twelve, unsuccessfully it turns out, that he would soon be delivered up to local rulers who would kill him. Then someone mentioned that a tax was due, which was forthrightly paid. Then he had to rebuke some of the brethren because they were arguing about who would be the greatest in his kingdom. All of this led him at one point to say, O faithless generation, how long shall I suffer you? He had occasion to ask that question more than once during his ministry. No wonder he longed for the prayerful solitude of mountaintops. Then Elder Holland says, We all have to come down from peak experiences to deal with the regular vicissitudes of life. I've read that passage before in another audio segment, but it's so appropriate here as we consider what this would have felt like for Nephi. We should also just consider how tired he would have been. He, like his father after his vision in 1 Nephi chapter 1, simply would have wanted to have cast himself upon his bed. So here is what he discovers, as it tells us in verse 2. And it came to pass that I beheld my brethren, and they were disputing one with another concerning the things which my father had spoken unto them. As readers, we've gone through a lot between chapters 11 and 14. But remember that as, as the narrative of this story is going, this is where we're at. We've just, with Lehi's family, received his vision that was related in chapter 8 and read his prophecies that were related in chapter 10. We know what Nephi did with that information and about the revelation that is to follow. And now we circle back around to this time when the rest of the family is coming to terms with Lehi's words. There are real problems with this method of disputing one with another. Uh, What a contrast to having a heavenly vision instead. Uh, Imagine Nephi having just seen all of this for himself having come to an understanding of Lehi's vision and his prophecy on that level. Then he finds his brothers taking on ill-informed positions on these subjects instead of actually finding out the way that Nephi tells us to do at the end of 1 Nephi chapter 10. He has already told his brothers in a variety of ways, and he's told us in a variety of ways as readers, that we don't appeal to others 
to find divine truth, but instead we go straight to God and ask Him. If we do so, the Holy Ghost will make this truth manifest to us. We can also see from this that when his brothers continue to take a contrary position to Nephi in subsequent chapters, that really even among themselves, uh, we, we can limit this to Laman and Lemuel, they, they weren't in perfect unity with one another. So that's the picture of what's happening in verse 2. Now verse 3, For he truly spake many great things unto them, meaning Lehi, which were hard to be understood, save a man should inquire of the Lord. And they being hard in their hearts, therefore they did not look unto the Lord as they ought. And how again would one look unto the Lord as they ought? Well, that would be to go straight to him, to look up for communication from him and dialogue with him, as opposed to looking side to side. That's an image that President Nelson once conveyed in General Conference. The role of the Holy Ghost in this process um, can't be overemphasized, really. And this is something that Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, when he said, For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Which things we also speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Then says Paul, almost as though he has Laman and Lemuel in mind, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. And we can tell at several points in the story that that is indeed Laman and Lemuel's perception of Lehi and Nephi, that they are foolish. And then Paul finishes the verse by saying, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. We can also see from this verse that there are truths spoken by prophets that are hard to be understood, save a man should inquire of the Lord, telling us that this might be considered a certain category of teachings, that there are some things that we receive from the prophet that really are hard to be understood, and there's really only one way to sort that out. That's the way Paul, of course, has just described. So it's a category of things. It reminds us a little bit of the Savior saying that this kind cometh not out but by prayer and fasting. Uh, This kind. It's this kind of teaching that's coming from a prophet that requires this type of response from us. Now verse 4, And now I, Nephi, was grieved because of the hardness of their hearts, and also because of the things which I had seen and knew that they must unavoidably come to pass because of the great wickedness of the children of men. Chapter 15 expands upon several of the things that are given to us in 1 Nephi chapter 8, and this is one of them. When we are told that Lehi has grave concern for Laman and Lemuel, that concern, Nephi now shares it because of the things that he has seen, and and verse 4 is the way that he expresses that. Verse 5 And it came to pass that I was overcome because of my afflictions. For I considered that mine afflictions were great above all because of the destruction of my people, for I had beheld their fall. Beholding the fall of his people, of course, would have uh, been a great burden to Nephi. Um, Elder Maxwell once said that uh, we may feel that our particular assemblage of affliction 
is perhaps larger than that of anyone else. Nephi recorded this indicator of how he once felt. Nephi's capacity to lament genuinely over the wickedness of his colleagues is a reflection of his highly developed love for his associates and fellow men. Nephi, of course, will tell us later, uh, much later at the end of 2 Nephi, that his eyes water his pillow continually by night because of his prayers and concerns for his people. This is a certain type of affliction that other prophets have also felt. Uh, we know that Enoch felt this way in Moses chapter 7, verse 44. And as Enoch saw this, he had bitterness of soul and wept over his brethren and said unto the heavens, I will refuse to be comforted. But the Lord said unto Enoch, Lift up your heart and be glad and look. We often, uh, it seems, think of Enos, uh, Nephi's nephew, as kind of an errant uh, prodigal who was in need of a great deal of repentance. Uh, I think there's uh, a completely different way of thinking of Enos uh, because I think that he too shared uh, this heavenly vision and also um, had this great capacity to have this level of concern for his people uh, uh, like Enoch did and and like Nephi. We read this, for example, in Enos uh, verse 13, And now behold, this was the desire which I desired of him, that if it should so be that my people, the Nephites, should fall into transgression and by any means be destroyed, and the Lamanites should not be destroyed, that the Lord God would preserve a record of my people, the Nephites, even if it so be by the power of his holy arm, that it might be brought forth at some future day unto the Lamanites, that perhaps they might be brought into salvation. You really can feel Enos's great love for his people and his concern for them. It suggests that he bore the burden and probably had the capacity of a great prophet. Then verse 6 tells us, And it came to pass that after I had received strength, I spake unto my brethren, desiring to know of them the cause of their disputations. Here we get this very um, understated reference to Nephi uh, being weak, uh, physically weak and exhausted after being in the Spirit and seeing so much. It's interesting that he says that he had received strength, after I had received strength. I think that verbiage acknowledges his dependence upon God. It's very different than saying, and after I gained strength. I referenced uh, Lehi's need to gain strength earlier, after his vision, after seeing the Lord. Uh, Moses went through the same thing. We can read of this in Moses chapter 1, verse 10. And it came to pass that it was for the space of many hours before Moses did again receive his natural strength like unto man. And he said unto himself, Now for this cause, I know that man is nothing, which thing I had never supposed. So the spirit of this verse seems to be that Nephi has come down from the mountaintop. He is uh, exhausted. He's physically fatigued. He receives a measure of strength and then faces his post-illumination affliction, we can say, by addressing his brethren and saying, okay, let's discuss the cause of your disputations then. Their very first concern, stated concern in verse 7, has to do with the natural branches of the olive tree and the Gentiles, so that seems to be what they're disputing about. 
Nephi will come to that in a moment, but first he will address this issue of inquiring of the Lord. So in verse 7, And they said, Behold, we cannot understand the words which our Father hath spoken concerning the natural branches of the olive tree and also concerning the Gentiles. So again, we can say that before Nephi addresses the olive tree part of the question, he's going to go back to their comment that we cannot understand the words which our Father hath spoken. He's going to address that for a moment and talk about why that is. He asks simply in verse 8, And I said unto them, Have ye inquired of the Lord? Remember here, too, that Nephi is telling a story, but he is also telling this story in a very strategic way, and he wants to teach us as readers. And this interrogative that he poses to his brethren uh, is, is not the first time that he has taught us, as we've moved through his record so far, that that is the way to deal with spiritual truths, to inquire of the Lord. The first time we see Nephi dealing with this is in uh, 1 Nephi chapter 2, and it's not just spiritual truths that he's inquiring about, but instead it's a challenging requirement that's coming from a prophet, and he chooses to inquire of the Lord about that. That tells us a great deal. Then their response in verse 9 almost makes you heartsick, really. And they said unto me, We have not. For the Lord maketh no such thing known unto us. Um, As if the onus rests upon the Lord to reveal these truths to Laman and Lemuel, when they clearly have not done the spiritual work necessary to have those things made known unto them. We most certainly can see that same attitude manifest today. ranging from those who uh, question the existence of God all the way to questioning the counsel of a prophet. Elder Maxwell had quite a lot to say about this exchange between Nephi and his brethren and this question about inquiring of the Lord and their response. He said this failure to believe in a revealing God was especially basic. Some moderns who wish to distance themselves from God try placing his pavilion firmly in the past. By believing in such a disabled God, people can do pretty much as they please. It is then not too many steps further to saying there is no God, therefore there is no law and no sin. Like Laman and Lemuel, many today would consign God only to the past. He thereby ceases to be the constant God of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Actually, God has the past, present, and future ever before him, constituting an eternal now. In short, Laman and Lemuel's own lack of character kept them from understanding the perfect character of God. No wonder the prophet Joseph Smith said, If men do not comprehend the character of God, they do not comprehend themselves. Laman and Lemuel did not realize either that a loving God will inevitably be a tutoring father who wants his children to be truly happy, and to come home. Not understanding God's teaching sufficiently, Laman and Lemuel missed the most important attribute of God's character, his love. Thus their murmuring was a symptom of a pathetic pathology. Now we see Nephi in verse 10 linking their lack of knowing to their lack of doing. He says, Behold, I said unto them, How is it that ye do not keep the commandments of the Lord? 
How is it that ye will perish because of the hardness of their hearts, of your hearts? This is of interest to us because the subject so far has simply been uh, the brother's lack of of knowing, uh, not their lack of doing. But again, Nephi is linking those two things here, telling them that they have not kept the commandments of the Lord and implying then that that is why they do not know and is why they will perish. When he says they will perish, remember that he has just seen this in vision. He knows that his brothers are headed to apostasy and that most of their seed will follow suit. This lament by Jeremiah captures the pathos of this. He says, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. That's in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 5. The connection between perishing and having a vision is is very striking in this verse, in verse 10, because it is Nephi that has had the vision, and it is Lehi that has had this vision, and it is it is his brothers who have not, and therefore their fate is to perish. Uh, this connection is made very direct in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18, which says, Where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law happy is he. With that proverb, we, we would normally uh, interpret vision as a state of enlightenment. That is the gift that's given to all who keep the commandments of God. And, and I do think that is true. However, it is interesting uh, to connect it to this verse and to Nephi's experience and to think about specifically the vision which he has had. This hardness of his brother's hearts uh, gets to the crux of the matter. And here is some commentary by Elder Dallin H. Oaks. Nephi attempted to teach his brothers that they could know the meaning of their father's prophetic utterances, which were hard to be understood, save a man should inquire of the Lord. Nephi told them, if they did not harden their hearts and would keep the commandments and inquire of the Lord in faith, surely these things shall be made known unto you. If we harden our hearts, reject continuing revelation, and limit our learning to what we can obtain by study and reason on the precise language of the present canon of scriptures. Uh, That is a remarkable statement, by the way. Our understanding will be limited to what Alma called the lesser portion of the word. If we seek and accept revelation and inspiration to enlarge our understanding of the scriptures, we will realize a fulfillment of Nephi's inspired promise that those who diligently seek will have the mysteries of God unfolded to them by the power of the Holy Ghost. I want to reread that small phrase out of Elder Oaks's, uh, now of course President Oaks's, uh, commentary where he says, if we limit our learning to what we can obtain by study and reason on the precise language of the present canon of scriptures, telling us very clearly that there is more to learn from scripture than what we gain by just using reason, but that scripture can provide a conduit of communication and revelation with God. 
With respect to the state of the heart and revelation, the prophet Joseph Smith once said, could we all come together with one heart and one mind in perfect faith, the veil might as well be rent today as next week or any other time. In other words, there are conditions that can be met that will allow for the veil to be rent. The brother of Jared most certainly taught us that. And then Joseph Smith has said at at another time, God hath not revealed anything to Joseph, but what he will make known unto the twelve. And even the least saint may know all things as fast as he is able to bear them. Now Nephi finishes this discussion uh, about inquiring of the Lord uh, in verse 11. Do ye not remember the things which the Lord hath said? If ye will not harden your hearts, and ask me in faith, believing that ye shall receive, with diligence in keeping my commandments, surely these things shall be made known unto you. That is his succinct way of confirming everything that I've just read from Elder Oaks and from the prophet Joseph Smith. The Ogden Skinner commentary uh, puts it this way, If you desire to experience the mighty things of the Spirit, here is the formula from verse 11 and the end of verse 14. Inquire with faith plus obey the commandments equals receive revelation. If you do his will, you can know the doctrine is true. And then they reference John 7, 17. This passage teaches the same grand message as James 1, 5 and Moroni 10, uh, where Moroni's promise is contained in verses 4 through 5. If you sincerely ask of God with real intent, having faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth to you by the power of the Holy Ghost. The patriarch Abraham is a superb example of one who actively inquired of the Lord and relentlessly sought to claim blessings that God promises to all who seek him in righteousness. I'll read that passage in Abraham chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 4, so that we can have more insight into Abraham's character and how he has done the same thing. In the land of the Chaldeans at the residence of my fathers, I, Abraham, saw that it was needful for me to obtain another place of residence. And finding there was greater happiness and peace and rest for me, I sought for the blessings of the fathers and the right whereunto I should be ordained to administer the same. Having been myself a follower of righteousness, desiring also to be one who possessed great knowledge, and to be a greater follower of righteousness and to possess a greater knowledge, and to be a father of many nations, a prince of peace, and desiring to receive instructions and to keep the commandments of God, I became a rightful heir, a high priest, holding the right belonging to the fathers. It was conferred upon me from the fathers. It came down from the fathers from the beginning of time, yea, even from the beginning or before the foundation of the earth, down to the present time, even the right of the firstborn, or the first man who is Adam, our first father, through the fathers unto me. I sought for mine appointment unto the priesthood, according to the appointment of God, unto the fathers concerning the seed. Nephi will now return to the question that his brethren posed in verse 7, where they say that they'd like to know about, or we cannot understand, maybe it's better to, to use their words, we cannot understand the words which our Father hath spoken concerning the natural branches of the olive tree and also concerning the Gentiles. And so in verses 12 and 13, Nephi explains this and also uses this term, fullness of the Gentiles, which we'll discuss. Uh, 
Behold, I say unto you that the house of Israel was compared unto an olive tree by the Spirit of the Lord which was in her father. And behold, are we not broken off from the house of Israel, and are we not a branch of the house of Israel? His use of the word branch here can be likened to many other passages of Scripture, and most notably the prophecy that is found in Genesis chapter 49, verse 22, that says, Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well, whose branches run over the wall. Then Nephi says in verse 13, And now the thing which our father meaneth concerning the grafting in of the natural branches through the fullness of the Gentiles is that in the latter days when our seed shall have dwindled in unbelief, yea, for the space of many years and many generations after the Messiah shall be manifested in body unto the children of men, then shall the fullness of the gospel of the Messiah come unto the Gentiles and from the Gentiles unto the remnant of our seed. That's a verse that says a lot, and it can kind of make your head spin. I think it would have made Laman and Lemuel's head spin as they read it. The only way for it not to is if you had had this vision. Uh, Nephi understood this in such plainness and such clarity, and for us, he has given us that plainness and that clarity in the four previous chapters, so that by the time we get to verse 13, our, our heads should not spin. Uh, we, we should understand exactly what he's talking about now. We should be nodding our heads with Nephi, uh, hoping that his brothers understand what he's saying. Nephi references the dwindling and unbelief that he has already told us about at the end of 1 Nephi chapter 12, uh, when he runs through that vision that follows the same basic timeline as the entire Book of Mormon. Then he references the coming of the Messiah and the many generations that will come after the coming of Messiah, which is also something that he taught us about in 1 Nephi chapter 12. Then he explains in this verse that the time of the Gentiles or the fullness of the Gentiles will, will have to do with this group who comes to the promised land across the many waters, which is what he taught us in 1 Nephi chapter 13. And this will be after these many generations of his own seed has passed and that they shall have the fullness of the gospel of the Messiah. We read about that in great detail in chapter 13. And then we learned at the end of chapter 13 that there would be an order of the restoration of Nephi's own seed by saying that the Gentiles who now had the fullness of the gospel would bring it unto the remnant of Lehi's seed, which should remind us of his statement that says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Knowing all of this, we would expect that the next verse would talk about exactly that that uh, the Gentiles will bring the gospel to the remnant of Lehi's seed. And that is, then, what Nephi moves into in verses 14 through 18. Uh, with this frequent use of the word Gentiles, let me, uh, and I know we've talked about it previously, uh, but let me go quickly to a quote by Elder Bruce R. McConkie that can be very helpful. Both Lehi and Nephi divide all men into camps, Jews and Gentiles, the Jews were either the nationals of the kingdom of Judah or their descendants. All others were considered to be Gentiles. Thus we are the Gentiles of whom this scripture speaks. We are the ones who have received the fullness of the gospel, and we shall take it to the Lamanites, who are Jews, because their fathers came from Jerusalem and from the kingdom of Judah. 
I would add that in this sense, uh, Elder McConkie is calling the seed of Lehi Jews, which is according to Nephi's definition. But later in this chapter, in verses 19 and 20, Nephi will speak of the restoration of the Jews in the latter days, as he says in verse 19, uh, which may have reference more broadly to the Jews as we know them, as the descendants of Judah. This is also a helpful definition of Gentile from Elder McConkie. Joseph Smith was the Gentile by whose hand the Book of Mormon came forth, and the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are the Gentiles who carry salvation to the Lamanites and to the Jews. Now verse 14, And at that day shall the remnant of our seed know that they are of the house of Israel, and that they are the covenant people of the Lord, and then shall they know and come to the knowledge of their forefathers, and also to the knowledge of the gospel of their Redeemer, which was ministered unto their fathers by him. Wherefore they shall come to the knowledge of their Redeemer, and the very points of his doctrine, that they may know how to come unto him and be saved. We can see there that intent is only the beginning of this process of discipleship, but that there are very points of, uh, as Nephi says, very points of his doctrine that teach us how to come unto him. So there is a way that must be followed. That way or that path is often shrouded by mists of darkness, but because of the iron rod, we can indeed find that way and follow that way and stay, uh, stay with it to the end. This gives us great insight into the nature of the plain and precious things that were removed from the Bible that can give us the impression that the way is not so specific and doesn't have so very many points of doctrine. Where, where the chief requirement is simply to declare an allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. But what we learn clearly from the Book of Mormon is that we have to go beyond that and link ourselves to him by covenant and show fidelity to him throughout that process, throughout our exile. When we look at the beginning of this verse, and it says that at that day shall the remnant of Lehi's seed know that they are of the house of Israel, if we want to know the means by which they come to know, we can read um, other passages of Scripture that, that talk about the way in which the Word made it possible for them to come to that realization. Here is one such passage in Second Nephi chapter 3, verse 12. Wherefore the fruit of thy loins shall write, and the fruit of the loins of Judah shall write, and that which shall be written by the fruit of thy loins, and also that which shall be written by the fruit of the loins of Judah shall grow together under the confounding of false doctrines, and laying down of contentions, and establishing peace among the fruit of thy loins, and bringing them to the knowledge of their fathers in the latter days, and also to the knowledge of my covenants, saith the Lord. Regarding the way in which uh, his seed would be preserved, Jacob once said in Jacob chapter 3, verse 6, And now this commandment they observe to keep. Wherefore, because of this observance in keeping the commandment, the Lord God will not destroy them, but will be merciful unto them, and one day they shall become a blessed people. The Doctrine and Covenants looks forward to this time. In section 3, verse 18, it says, In this testimony, and of course this chapter is about the Book of Mormon, 
And this testimony shall come to the knowledge of the Lamanites and the Lemuelites and the Ishmaelites, who dwindled in unbelief because of the iniquity of their fathers, whom the Lord has suffered to destroy their brethren, the Nephites, because of their iniquities and their abominations. Now verse 15, with reference to those who will be saved, Nephi says, And then at that day will they not rejoice and give praise unto their everlasting God, their rock and their salvation. Yea, at that day will they not receive the strength and nourishment from the true vine. Yea, will they not come unto the true fold of God. Several images and metaphors are happening here at the same time when Nephi is likening the Lord to their rock and their salvation and being uh, bound to him and having him as their foundation, but then also linking uh, themselves to him in the manner of a vine that receives nourishment. That reminds us of the Savior's statements, our statement in John chapter 15, verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. So this is a beautiful image, and it is indeed cause for rejoicing that those who are outside of the house of Israel can be grafted in. Those who have that same uh, incessant uh, desire that was expressed by Abraham in that passage can be grafted in. Verse 16 says, Behold, I say unto you, Yea, they shall be remembered again among the house of Israel. They shall be grafted in, being a natural branch of the olive tree, into the true olive tree. The parties in question here, again, are Lehi's seed. Now, we know that they are already blood Israelites. They already come from the seed of Joseph. Yet we're reading here in verse 15 or 16 about them being grafted in. So that tells us that this grafting has to do with the covenant. It is all about the covenant. It tells us that anyone of any lineage can be grafted into the house of Israel and become true members of it, just as a branch is a true member of a tree, and that it is not a matter of, a matter of lineage, but it is a matter of covenanting with Christ. The imagery of grafting is so perfect here. We can think about how uh, when a branch is grafted into a tree, there is an element of exposure or vulnerability uh, on the part of the host, on the part of the tree, because uh, a portion of it has to be exposed uh, so that its nutrient supply can uh, make contact with the bare branch. And remember that the word strength and nourishment was used in the previous verse. And so that's what happens in grafting. Then as that nutrient supply is transferred from the host tree to the branch, which has to be fixed to the tree so that there is no movement whatsoever, so that it can receive that nourishment and that union can't be broken. It's very, it's very tenuous at first. We know that as long as that is allowed to continue, there is ultimately a fusion between the branch and the tree, and at that point, the branch becomes inextricably tied to the tree. It is part of the tree just as much as any other branch. It's a beautiful image, and it speaks so accurately to the process and the possibility for all children of mankind to be grafted into the true olive tree. And this, of course, is the time in the earth's history 
when we see so much of this happening. Uh, President Gordon B. Hinckley said, My brethren and sisters, do you realize what we have? Do you recognize our place in the great drama of human history? This is the focal point of all that has gone before. This is the season of restitution. These are the days of restoration. This is the time when men from all over the earth come to the mountain of the Lord's house to seek and learn of his ways and to walk in his paths. This is the summation of all the centuries of time since the birth of Christ to this present and wonderful day. Then Nephi continues this discussion of the restoration of Lehi's seed by saying in verses 17 and 18, And this is what our father meaneth, and he meaneth that it will not come to pass until after they are scattered by the Gentiles. And he, and, and of course we learned about that in Nephi's vision. So once again, uh, having read Nephi's vision carefully, we, we with him understand what he's saying in verse 17, and we hope that his brothers are following along. So he meaneth that it will not come to pass until after they are scattered by the Gentiles. And he meaneth that it shall come by way of the Gentiles, that the Lord may show... And, and so we get this, this interesting dichotomy here, by the way, because it's the Gentiles that scatter Lehi's seed, but then they are also the means by which this covenant will come to them. Okay, continuing on with the verse. That the Lord may show his power unto the Gentiles for the very cause that he shall be rejected of the Jews or of the house of Israel. Wherefore, in verse 18, our father hath not spoken of our seed alone, but also of all the house of Israel, pointing to the covenant which should be fulfilled in the latter days, which covenant the Lord made to our father Abraham, saying, In thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. So Nephi is now expanding the scope from the restoration of Lehi's seed into the olive tree and, and saying that this can be the fate of all all the house of Israel. This will lead us in a moment to reading verses 19 and 20, where the scope of this gathering is expanded beyond Lehi's seed, and then we can discuss the gathering of Israel more generally. First, here's a quote by Monty Nyman about this uh, house of Israel uh, spoken by Lehi. Lehi and his seed are not the only branch to be grafted into the olive tree. All of the branches of the house of Israel will be grafted in. The allegory of Zenos speaks to the three natural branches, and of course that's in Jacob chapter 5. Nephi spoke to his brothers of one of the two other natural branches, the restoration of the Jews in the latter days, the other branch, the lost tribes, will be identified. The covenant made to Abraham will be fulfilled in the latter days through the grafting in of the natural branches and an offering of the blessings of the gospel to all nations as Abraham was promised. So now, uh, verse 19, Nephi says, And it came to pass that I, Nephi, spake much unto them concerning these things. Yea, I spake unto them concerning the restoration of the Jews in the latter days. The restoration of the Jews in the latter days. And, and we know that this happens, this, or we, we learn this at the end of 1 Nephi chapter 13, that this is the thing that happens after the Gentiles have been grafted in and they will be the means by which the Jews are gathered. Isaiah spoke of this in an interesting way. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 22, uh, when referring to the Jews, But this is a people robbed and spoiled. They are all of them snared in holes, and they are hid in prison houses. 
They are for a prey, and none delivereth for a spoil, and none saith, Restore. In his beautiful poetic way, and Isaiah is recalling an image of the pit, something we've talked about recently, he's telling us that these uh, Jews are captive and that they need to be rescued. Now verse 20, And I did rehearse unto them the words of Isaiah, who spake concerning the restoration of the Jews, or of the house of Israel. And after they were restored, they should no more be confounded, neither should they be scattered again. And it came to pass that I did speak many words unto my brethren, that they were pacified and did humble themselves before the Lord. The next passage in this chapter will go through three interpretations of Lehi's dream. It's interesting to see that uh, his brothers had come to a certain attitude before they are ready to discuss the meaning of those elements from Lehi's vision. We see again at the end of verse 20 that they were pacified and that they did humble themselves before the Lord. Returning first, though, to this verse in verse 20 and the gathering of Israel and, and how it is here that Nephi says he rehearsed unto them the words of Isaiah. We know that Nephi did this frequently uh, and he'll do this a lot as we move through his record. He tells us in 1 Nephi chapter 19, just a few chapters after this, And I did read many things unto them which were written in the books of Moses, but that I might more fully persuade them to believe in the Lord their Redeemer, I did read unto them that which was written by the prophet Isaiah. That's in verse 23. I think it's amazing that in Nephi's exhausted state, he even rehearses unto them the words of Isaiah in this interchange with his brothers. This, he, he Once again, he told us that he received his strength from the Lord before he launches into this conversation. So uh, we, he, was, he was renewed in some degree so that the, he had the energy to do this. Uh, but this clearly was an extended conversation with his brothers as he's now moving into the words of Isaiah. Here's a short verse by Isaiah where he's announcing this great gathering. And as Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9, perhaps this is something that Nephi said to them. O Zion, that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. I want to move into some commentary that's provided by the Book of Mormon Institute manual for a moment on the gathering of Israel. And I'm going to read it through and also read some of the scriptural passages that it provides for us. Who is the house of Israel? The house of Israel generally refers to the descendants of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel in the Old Testament. This happens here in Genesis chapter 32, verses 27 through 28. And he said unto them, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince thou hast power with God and with men, thou hast and hast prevailed. In the Book of Mormon, the Savior expanded this definition to include not only the literal descendants of Israel, but also all Gentiles who repent, are baptized, and come unto Christ. And that, of course, is the thing that we have just learned by, by discussing this image of grafting. The gathering of Israel in the last days is a fulfillment of the covenant Jehovah made with the prophets of the Old Testament. 
Here are some examples. Uh, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 12. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations, and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel, and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 10. Hear ye the word of the Lord, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He that scattered Israel will gather him, and keep him as a shepherd doth his flock. Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 12. As a shepherd seeketh out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. Abraham chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee above measure, and make thy name great among all nations, and thou shalt be a blessing unto thy seed after thee, that in their hands they shall bear this ministry and priesthood unto all nations. And I will bless them through thy name. For as many as receive this gospel shall be called after thy name, and shall be accounted thy seed, and shall rise up and bless thee as their father. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curse thee. And in thee, that is, in thy priesthood, and in thy seed, that is, thy priesthood, for I give unto thee a promise that this right shall continue in thee, and in thy seed after thee, that is to say, the literal seed or the seed of the body, shall all the families of the earth be blessed even with the blessings of the gospel, which are the blessings of salvation, even of life eternal. Then the Institute Manual continues by saying, Jesus Christ repeated this promise in Third Nephi chapter 20, at which time he indicated that the covenant to gather Israel was first made with Abraham as part of the Abrahamic covenant. Oh, I've just read a portion of that. The Savior taught in 3 Nephi chapter 21 that the coming of forth of the Book of Mormon is a sign to the entire world that the Lord has commenced to gather Israel and fulfill covenants he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's confirmed in the book of Ether, actually, uh, chapter 4, verse 7, 17. Therefore, when ye shall receive this record, ye may know that the work of the Father has commenced upon the face of the land. President Russell M. Nelson uh, taught that the Book of Mormon is central to this work. It declares the doctrine of the gathering. It causes people to learn about Jesus Christ, to believe his gospel, and to join his church. In fact, if there were no Book of Mormon, the promised gathering of Israel would not occur. The spiritual gathering of Israel occurs when someone accepts the gospel of Jesus Christ and is baptized a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Elder Bruce R. McConkie of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles emphasized the importance of the spiritual gathering when he stated, The spiritual gathering takes precedence over the temporal. Men can be saved wherever they live, but they cannot be saved regardless of their abode unless they accept the gospel and come unto Christ. So that is spiritual gathering. Uh, with regard to uh, physical gathering, the manual says, Jesus Christ taught that there would eventually be two centers of gathering, the New Jerusalem and the Old Jerusalem. Uh, and that's expressed in Third Nephi chapter 20. As church membership expanded into other lands, President Spencer W. Kimball taught that the gathering place today is wherever someone lives. Quote, the gathering of Israel for Mexicans is in Mexico, in Scandinavia for those of the northern countries. The gathering place for the Germans is in Germany, and the Polynesians 
in the islands, for the Brazilians in Brazil, for the Argentines in Argentina, unquote. Then with respect to our responsibility in the latter days to help gather Israel, which is a subject, of course, that's near and dear to President Nelson, the Bible Dictionary says, being an heir to the Abrahamic covenant does not make one chosen per se, but does signify that such are chosen to responsibly carry the gospel to all peoples of the earth. The promise to gather Israel is being fulfilled today as descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob bear the Lord's name, his ministry, and his priesthood to all the families of the earth, thus offering them the blessings of the gospel, which are the blessings of salvation, even of life eternal. It becometh every man, as the Doctrine and Covenant says, who hath been warned to warn his neighbor." Unquote. Now to return to the chapter and to move to this next section that extends from verse 21 through verse 28. Nephi's brethren are now in a state of meekness, as we just read in verse 20. And they're, they're now ready to learn more about the tree uh, and, the, and the iron rod and the river in particular. And then Nephi will expand a great deal on, on that latter uh, element, the river. So in verse 21, he says, And it came to pass that they did speak unto me again, saying, What meaneth this thing which our father saw in a dream? What meaneth the tree which he saw? And for our review, we can remember that in 1 Nephi chapter 8, verse 10, it said, it, it said, and it, became, it, it came to pass that I beheld a tree whose fruit was desirable to make one happy. Nephi responds to them by saying in verse 22, And I said unto them, It was a representation of the tree of life. This tells us finally that we most certainly can associate the tree as shown in Lehi's vision and in Nephi's vision to the actual tree of life that we read about in the creation account. Or I should say in the account of the fall in the garden. Moses chapter 3 verse 9 says, And out of the ground made I, the Lord God, to grow every tree naturally that is pleasant to the sight of man. And man could behold it. And it became also a living soul. For it was spiritual in the day that I created it, for it remaineth in the sphere in which I, God, created it. Yea, even all things which I prepared for the use of man. And man saw that it was good for food. And I, the Lord God, planted the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and also the tree of knowledge of good and evil. McConkie and Millet say that uh, in response to the inquiry of his brothers, Nephi told them that it represented the tree of life. The tree of life was first spoken of in the creation account. It was the tree in the midst of the Garden of Eden, the fruit of which contained the power of everlasting life. The tree was a symbolic representation of Christ, its fruits symbolizing the saving principles of the gospel. This latter point, of course, is, is a plain and precious truth of interpretation. Uh, when we find that the tree, as it's um, described in Genesis chapter, uh, chapter 2 uh, and also in chapter 3, that that is what it is. It's a symbolic representation of Christ. Then the next element, Nephi's brethren say in verse 23, And they said unto me, What meaneth the rod of iron, which our father saw, that led to the tree? And we can remember 1 Nephi chapter 8, verse 19, which said, And I beheld a rod of iron, 
and it extended along the bank of the river and led to the tree by which I stood. In answering this, Nephi tells them a great deal and tells us a great deal in verse 24. And I said unto them that it was the word of God. And whoso would hearken unto the word of God and would hold fast unto it, they would never perish. Neither could the temptations and the fiery darts of the adversary overpower them unto blindness to lead them away to destruction. There is a lot happening in this verse, including the inclusion of a new metaphor, uh, fiery darts of the adversary, something that was not discussed or related in Lehi's dream. Perhaps it was an image that was seen by both of them in this vision, and Nephi is obliquely referencing it here, but we don't know for sure. When it says that the adversary would overpower them unto blindness and lead them away to destruction, we can think about 1 Nephi chapter 8 and the fourth group who felt their way towards the building, apparently not using their eyes. And so they were so blind that they were led away into strange roads and into drowning in the fountain of filthy water. This idea that the word of God is something that we would hold fast to, that Nephi says here, is reflected in other passages of Scripture. Proverbs 4 Verse 13 says, Take fast hold of instruction. Let her not go. Keep her, for she is thy life. A very beautiful connection. When Nephi uses the word temptations before the fiery darts of the adversary here in verse 24, it really is a reference to the mist of darkness. In 1 Nephi chapter 8, verse 23, it says, And it came to pass that there arose a mist of darkness, Uh, yea, even an exceedingly great mist of darkness. So he's calling that image to mind when he talks about the temptations uh, along with these fiery darts. Paul used the exact same phrase in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16, saying, Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. It creates a very helpful image, I think, that we'll come back to in just a moment. I just want to look at this word perish for just a second. Uh, it's, it's being connected here to, to clinging to the word or reading or internalizing the word. And, and I want to ask, uh, the, the word perish here, is that a bit dramatic, really? Um, aren't we just talking about whether we read a book or not when we're talking about the word? Well, the answer is a definitive no. And this is something that Nephi is teaching us. He's teaching us that it isn't just reading the word. It's, it's clinging to it. Uh, it's holding fast to it, as, as he said, and as that verse in Proverbs said. And as the Lord said uh, in Matthew chapter 24, it's treasuring the word. Uh, really, it's internalizing. We can think about how John ate the book in the book of Revelations. And, and ultimately, as we see John describing the Lord himself as the instantiated word, We know that it is becoming. It's a matter of becoming. And we'll have a chance to read some comments by Elder Oaks on that a little later. But all of this is implied in this image of holding fast to the word. And so perishing truly is what is at stake. And and it is the right word to use here. It reflects upon the entropic nature of our existence, really, as it's expressed in the law of entropy. It's the natural of order things, uh, order of things to go to a state of decay and to ruin. And 
And, and we know that that is naturally what will happen to us in our natural state. Um, while, while the language of flesh speaks so loudly to us, as King Benjamin will later teach us, and when there are forces, very real forces, that are trying to claim us, and these forces are truly malevolent, uh, as reflected by these fiery darts. Here is a statement by President Ezra Taft Benson. In his dream, Lehi saw an iron rod which led through the mists of darkness. He saw that if people would hold fast to that rod, they could avoid the rivers of filthiness, stay away from the forbidden paths, stop from wandering in the strange roads that lead to destruction. Later, his son Nephi clearly explained the symbolism of the iron rod. When Laman and Lemuel asked, What meaneth the rod of iron? Nephi answered, It was the word of God. And note this promise, Whoso would hearken unto the word of God, and would hold fast unto it, they would never perish. Neither could the temptations and the fiery darts of the adversary overpower them unto blindness to lead them away to destruction. Not only will the word of God lead us to the fruit which is desirable above all others, but in the word of God and through it, we can find the power to resist temptation, the power to thwart the work of Satan and his emissaries. That's from a, an Enzyme article. I think it's actually a conference talk uh, in May 1986 when President Benson spoke about the Book of Mormon, and, and it's called The Power of the Word. I think it's telling us that the Word doesn't simply inform us, uh, but it protects us. There's something dynamic about it in this sense. Uh, it, it makes us think of this passage in Helaman, uh, chapter 3, verses 29 through 30. Yea, we see that whosoever will may lay hold upon the word of God, which is quick and powerful, which shall divide asunder all the cunning and the snares and the wiles of the devil, and lead the man of Christ in a straight and narrow course across that everlasting gulf of misery, which is prepared to engulf the wicked, and land their souls, yea, their immortal souls, at the right hand of God in the kingdom of heaven, to sit down with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob, and with all our holy fathers to go no more out. Based upon the things that we've learned and seen from Nephi's great vision and Lehi's vision and John's vision in the book of Revelation, there are so many connections happening in our minds as we read those two verses. Here's some great commentary by Ogden and Skinner. Again on this subject that the word uh, does far more for us than simply to inform us. Here is one of the great promises in all of Scripture, a guarantee of safety during the tumultuous last days, safety and salvation. Whoever will hold fast to the Word of God, especially the Book of Mormon, will never perish. What does it mean to hold fast to the rod? If you are in a river, sinking and about to drown, and someone extends you a branch, how do you hold on to it? You grab it tightly and cling to it for dear life. That is how you must hold firmly to the Word of God. In Nephi's analogy, in a sense, we are all dartboards, and Satan is a professional dart thrower. What are the fiery darts he is hurling at us? Immoral and violent movies, pornographic internet sites, worldly music, profane and crude language, sexual perversions and deviations, the allure of materialism, and much and many more. 
If you are treasuring up the word, you will not have to debate whether or not to indulge in these things. They will be repulsive to your spirit. You will not be blinded by the world's example. Whoso treasureth up my word shall not be deceived. And that's out of uh, Joseph Smith Matthew, also referencing Matthew chapter 24. The adversary will not overpower you. He will have no power over you. That is a sure promise and a comforting one. Nephi finishes his discussion regarding the word with his brethren by saying in verse 25, Wherefore I, Nephi, did exhort them to give heed unto the word of the Lord. Yea, I did exhort them with all the energies of my soul and with all the faculty which I possessed, that they would give heed to the word of God and remember to keep his commandments always in all things. This word heed is an important one. And we can remember from Lehi's vision that those who were at the tree that gave heed to those in the large and uh, into the great and spacious building, they're the ones that fell away. And the ones who heeded them not are the ones who did not. So uh, instead, they gave heed unto the word of the Lord, as Nephi is saying here. Doctrine and Covenants, section 11, verse 2, says, Behold, I am God. Give heed to my word, which is quick and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword to the dividing asunder of both joints and marrow. Therefore, give heed unto my word. Nephi gives, gives us a sense uh, of, of the effort that he goes to uh, to discuss these things with his brethren. Uh, with all the energies of my soul, he says. Uh, King Benjamin once said, uh, actually, this is Mormon describing the efforts of King Benjamin. He says in Words of Mormon, verse 18, King Benjamin, by laboring with all the might of his body, and the faculty of his whole soul, and also the prophets, did once more establish peace in the land. This effort uh, undoubtedly uh, is with the understanding that it is the Holy Ghost that does the persuading. And that clearly was Nephi's goal here as he spoke to his brethren. We could add here that this requires Nephi to have a genuine love for his brothers so that it's possible for the Spirit of the Lord to be present in his teachings to them. At this point in the story, this is is utterly remarkable, I think, almost implausible, that Nephi could maintain a love for his brethren. Even we, who are just readers in this story, (laughs) develop feelings towards Nephi's brethren. Now the subject moves to the river, And Nephi's answer expands into a discussion generally of the nature of hell that moves us to the end of the chapter. Verse 26 says, And they said unto me, What meaneth the river of water which our fathers saw? And that references 1 Nephi chapter 8, verse 13, that says, And as I cast mine eyes round about, and this is Lehi, of course, that perhaps I might discover my family also, I beheld a river of water, and it ran along, and it was near the tree of which I was partaking the fruit. Now, we don't get a clear impression of the nature of this river when Lehi relates that in that passage. We're not sure whether it's good or bad, really. But Nephi makes it very clear here in verse 27, saying, And I said unto them that the water which my father saw was filthiness, and so much was his mind swallowed up in other things 
that he beheld not the filthiness of the water. Uh, And so for us, as we read the account of his vision in chapter 8, we too uh, did not behold the filthiness of the water. So this is a really important chapter, or excuse me, an important passage for us uh, here so that, that we can have an accurate understanding of the meaning of that river that Lehi was seeing that was running uh, along, as it says in verse 18 of First Nephi chapter 8. This was already very clear in Nephi's mind uh, because he relates to us in 1 Nephi chapter 12 as he is seeing the same things. He says, And the angel spake unto me, saying, Behold the fountain of filthy water which thy father saw, yea, even the river of which he spake, and the depths thereof are the depths of hell. And, And notice that Nephi is being told that by an angel. And so as he relates the meaning of the river to his brethren, he has just been told that himself by an angel something very remarkable to consider. In their ignorance, I'm not sure if they realize the authority by which Nephi speaks and just with what clarity he had just seen this himself. When Nephi tells us that Lehi's mind was swallowed up in other things, in verse 27, so that he beheld not the filthiness of the water, we don't know what those other things were. Uh, we, we could imagine that it, it is his anxious uh, preoccupation with his family, hoping that they'll join him. That's kind of the context of it. The word swallowed up will be used later in the Book of Mormon, reflecting uh, being swallowed up in the joy of Christ. Uh, this happens in Alma chapter 31, verse 38. And in that case, it, it's very good to be swallowed up or to be caught up in the things of God. Then Nephi explains in verse 28, And I said unto them, that it, meaning this river, was an awful gulf, which separated the wicked from the tree of life, and also from the saints of God. The word gulf shows up in an interesting way in the book of Luke, in in Luke chapter 16, in connection with the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, The Savior says, And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that when so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. So there's a gulf, there's a division that um, Nephi is talking about here. Um, And we can remember that in the vision, it seems to divide the tree from the building. In President Joseph F. Smith's vision of the redemption of the dead, he saw a gulf, and in fact, he couldn't go among those who were ungodly uh, during his mission in the spirit world. He's told in that vision in section 138, verse 20, that the ungodly and the unrepentant who had defiled themselves while in the flesh are those that he is separated from. He finds that these same people had rejected the testimonies and the warnings of the ancient prophets, as it says in verses 21 and 22, and that they did not behold his presence, nor look upon his face. Uh, Where they were, darkness reigned. We'll come to learn as this chapter goes on that this division does reflect the final state of the souls of men as well. And we have this statement by McConkie and Millet. uh, When when we're about to read later in verse 34 about, uh, about this ultimate separation, and why it is that the righteous and the wicked are separated. Uh, Both the justice of God 
and the laws of nature mandate a division of the wicked from the righteous. The warmth and glory of the noonday sun and midnight's shield of darkness are not compatible companions. Light and darkness will never meet. Christ and Satan will never shake hands. The separation of the righteous from the wicked in the world to come is foreshadowed by their separation in mortality. This life, like the one to follow, has its children of light and its children of darkness. The citizens of both kingdoms prepare themselves here for the nature of the society of which they will be a part, both in and after death. Now Nephi finishes the chapter out, from verse 29 to the end, with this uh, idea in mind, this discussion of hell and, and the nature of this separation. It says in verse 29, And I said unto them that it was a representation, it, of course, being the river, of that awful hell which the angel said unto me was prepared for the wicked. Verse 30, And I said unto them that our father also saw that the justice of God did also divide the wicked from the righteous, and the brightness thereof was like unto the brightness of a flaming fire, which ascendeth up unto God for ever and ever, and hath no end. This fire seems to have reference to the glory of God and the presence of God, and we can remember Lehi's vision in First Nephi chapter 1 and how a pillar of fire descended. Uh, there's a, a, an episode in the book of Numbers, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, and when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, and the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burnt among them, and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. In that case, there's a spirit of vengeance or retribution, so it seems, with this fire. But it's more than that. Uh, it is a fire of glory. And um, it creates division, because there, it is only the righteous that can withstand his glory can withstand this fire. Verse 31, And they said unto me, Doth this thing mean the torment of the body in the days of probation? Or doth it mean the final state of the soul after the death of the temporal body? Or doth it speak of the things which are temporable? Uh, temporal. <laughs> I, I would add that this is a, a thoughtful question from Nephi's brothers, from Laman and Lemuel. Uh, Sam, of course, goes un, unmentioned here, and, and we can guess that Sam was not antagonistic toward Nephi, but uh, in, in keeping with the way that we uh, learn about Sam in, in other episodes, that he, he uh, would not have been antagonistic here. But it's a thoughtful question. Uh, it does reveal something about Laman and Lemuel. It shows that to a degree they did care and, and they did have some understanding. Uh, they're just oriented wrong. It might remind us of Alma uh, speaking to his son Corianton. He speaks with him about the nature of death as well and, and judgment. He says in Alma chapter 40, verse 11, Now concerning the state of the soul between death and the resurrection, behold, it has been made known unto me by an angel that the spirits of all men, as soon as they are departed from this mortal body, yea, the spirits of all men, whether they be good or evil, are taken home to that God who gave them life. So Alma is teaching important doctrine, uh, just as Nephi is here. And in both cases, they're speaking to someone who is spiritually off-kilter, we could say, but who still had questions about specific points of doctrine. Verse 32, And it came to pass that I said unto them that it was a representation of things both temporal and spiritual. For the day should come that they must be judged of their works, 
yea, even the works which were done by the temporal body in the days of their probation. The Ogden Skinner Commentary says this, Temporal or spiritual, it is all the same. Everything temporal is also spiritual to God and to all those who are godly. Uh, And there's an expression in section 29, verse 34, that confirms that. The wicked or filthy cannot enter the kingdom of God because there cannot be anything filthy in a place where a totally clean being lives. Then Nephi continues in verse 33, Wherefore, if they should die in their wickedness, they must be cast off also, as to the things which are spiritual. Alma explains the same thing to his son, in fact, saying, An awful death cometh upon the wicked, for they die as to things pertaining to things of righteousness, for they are unclean, and no unclean unclean thing can inherit the kingdom of God. But they are cast out and consigned to partake of the fruits of their labors or their works, which have been evil, and they drink the dregs of a bitter cup. Then Nephi says in verse 33, Cast off also, as to the things which are spiritual, which are pertaining to righteousness, wherefore they must be brought to stand before God, to be judged of their works, and if their works have been filthiness, they must needs be filthy. And if they be filthy, it must needs that they cannot dwell in the kingdom of God. If so, the kingdom of God must be filthy also. Which we know, of course, is not a possibility. The kingdom of God can't be filthy also. No unclean thing can dwell in the presence of God. Doctrine and Covenants section 88, verse 35, talks about how this filthy state will continue for those who are on the wrong side of this gulf. It says, That which breaketh a law, and abideth not by law, but seeketh to become a law unto itself, and willeth to abide in sin, and altogether abideth in sin, cannot be sanctified by law, neither by mercy, justice, nor judgment. Therefore, they must remain filthy still. These are they, again, who will not be able to dwell in God's presence. Nephi will liken that dwelling to the tree of life here in in another few verses. But there are so many beautiful passages that talk about this concept of dwelling in the presence of God. Psalm 15, verse 1 says, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Psalm 24, verse 3, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? Moses chapter 6, verse 57. Wherefore teach it unto your children that all men everywhere must repent, or they can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God, for no unclean thing can dwell there, or dwell in his presence. Verse 34. But behold, I say unto you, the kingdom of God is not filthy, and there cannot any unclean thing enter into the kingdom of God. Wherefore, there must needs be a place of filthiness prepared for that which is filthy. And there is a place prepared, yea, even that awful hell of which I have spoken, and the devil is the preparator of it. Wherefore, the final state of the souls of men is to dwell in the kingdom of God, or to be cast out because of that justice of which I have spoken. This phrase, final state, tells us that this gulf will be everlasting and that those who remain filthy will be filthy still. Uh, But there's something subtle about this division. I want to read this from the Institute Manual. A clear distinction exists between good and evil, light and darkness, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil, 
Hell is the place prepared for the filthy who follow Satan, while the righteous who have followed God enjoy the peace and glory of his kingdom. But how can the final state of all people be divided into just two groups, those who dwell in the kingdom of God and those who will be cast out? The key to answering this question is found in Doctrine and Covenants 76, verse 43, which summarizes the work of Jesus Christ as follows, quote, He glorifies the Father and saves all the works of his hands, except those sons of perdition who deny the Son after the Father has revealed him, unquote. Thus, the final state will include the grouping of saved individuals and unsaved individuals, or sons of perdition. Saved individuals will include those who are allowed to enter a degree of glory. Section 76 names three degrees of glory, celestial, terrestrial, and telestial, with information about the individuals who are worthy of each place in God's kingdom. Thus, salvation within the kingdom of God occurs in all three degrees of glory, while those who do not qualify are sons of perdition. Because of that justice of which I have spoken, is the way that Nephi puts it in verse 35, all of us will be judged of our works, or judged of their works, as Nephi earlier says. Here's something from President Dallin H. Oaks that gives us great insight into the way that judgment uh, will occur for all of us. Quote, Many Bible and modern scriptures speak of a final judgment at which all persons will be rewarded according to their deeds or works or the desires of their hearts. But other scriptures enlarge upon this by referring to our being judged by the condition we have achieved. The prophet Nephi describes the final judgment in terms of what we have become. And if their works have been filthiness, they must needs be filthy. And if they be filthy, it must needs be that they cannot dwell in the kingdom of God. Moroni declares, He that is filthy shall be filthy still, and he that is righteous shall be righteous still. The same would be true of selfish or disobedient or any other personal attribute inconsistent with the requirements of God. Referring to the state of the wicked in the final judgment, Alma explains that if we are condemned by our words, our works, and our thoughts, we shall not be found spotless, and in this awful state, we shall not dare to look up to our God. From such teachings, we conclude that the final judgment is not just an evaluation of a sum total of good and evil acts, what we have done. It is an acknowledgment of the final effect of our acts and thoughts, what we have become. It is not enough for anyone just to go through the motions. The commandments, ordinances, and covenants of the gospel are not a list of deposits required to be made in some heavenly account. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a plan that shows us how to become what our Heavenly Father desires us to become. Something that is not discussed in this chapter, but that is really troubling to us as we read Lehi's vision, is the difference between the second and third groups that Lehi describes. The second group attained the tree and tasted of the fruit, yet those people still fell away and left and went to the building. The group three fell to the ground and they stayed at the tree and, and were troubled by this. And we really wonder what the difference is between these groups and discovering the difference is key, of course. And, and I think that this statement by President Oaks helps us to understand the difference between these two groups, really. 
one group uh, had gone through the emotions, so to speak. One group, the second group, had followed the commandments and the ordinance and the covenants of the gospel, but they were only going through the motions. They had not become. And those in group three had become. Or as President Oaks says, what they had become was the final effect of their acts and thoughts. And so they were very much at home at the tree. They paid no heed to the mocking tone that came from the large and spacious building or a great and spacious building because they had become something different. They had no interest in what was coming from that great and spacious building and that's why they paid no heed to them. This is very, very instructive for us. The final verse of this chapter then is verse 36 and Nephi says, Wherefore, the wicked are rejected from the righteous and also from that tree of life whose fruit is most precious and most desirable above all other fruits. Yea, and it is the greatest of all the gifts of God. And thus I speak unto my brethren. Amen. So we end this chapter and Nephi ends his instruction to his brethren with this image of the tree of life, this same tree described in Genesis chapter 2 verse 9, which was the tree of life also in the midst of the garden. I think this reminds us before we return in 1st Nephi chapter 16, before we turn the page and move back to the story of Lehi's family in the wilderness, that we are reminded of the ultimate exile story here, the one where we're trying to make it back to the tree of life. It's the tree that Adam and Eve were separated from as they stepped into mortality, and the tree that is depicted in Revelation chapter 22 at the very end of the Bible that we all have the potential to return to. And this return to this tree is, as Nephi teaches us, is the greatest of all gifts of God. So it's tantamount to eternal life itself. And really, it is our deepest desire. Our return to it will be the source of everlasting joy, or our distance from it will be the source of everlasting torment. This brings us then to the end of 1 Nephi chapter 15.